0: amount of money in this industry is enormous, $50 million. And now that's the same as the seed raise.
1: There's a lot of money in this ecosystem right now. There's like a ton of money. You have so many more funds that are able to deploy capital. You have so much more capital in the ecosystem. It's crazy compared to raising 10 years ago.
2: Welcome, dear listener, to the 31st roundtable of the Metacost by Navic. My name is Nico, I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Sebastian Park, Mika Ahonen, and David Amor. Today we're discussing, first, Microsoft to acquire Activision Blizzard, the big news of this week. Second, uh, we're discussing NFT marketplaces. It starts with the OpenSea race, but a lot of stuff has happened in that world as well, which uh, I'd like to talk about. And then finally, if we have some time, because um, last week we didn't, uh, we had a third topic, and that is the raises of both Spike and Dream Games, which happened also this week. It was a pretty exciting week. Um, so yeah, let's dive in. But before we do that quickly, the panelists, um, yeah, let's do a quick intro so you know we know who's talking. David, you can uh, you can start.
0: Hey, nice to be back, Nico. Uh, yeah, we've, um, as I think I've talked on the pod before, we set up a company in September of last year, releasing our first game next week called The Crypt. Happy to get something out. It's not, you know, it's not, talk is cheap. Getting games out is what it's about, right? Nothing. Uh, everything up until that point is meaningless. So, yeah, good to get a full blockchain on-chain game out next week. So um, let's see how that goes.
2: Man, I'm excited for that. I'm mm-hmm. I'm ready. I'm ready to play. Uh-huh. Cool. Welcome.
3: Uh, Mika, or thanks. Hey, Nico. Uh, what's up? Uh, great to be here. Uh, yeah, so, a short intro, I'm a co-founder of Lightheart Entertainment. We made uh, Mr. Autofire. It's a, it's a mobile game out there. You can try it if you want. It's it's pretty fun, I think. Um, now working on that and we're actually staffing up for our next game as well. So, pretty ex- excited about it, actually. Uh, forming two two game teams instead of just one. Um, so yeah, this year looks pretty good for us.
2: Nice. Exciting. Congrats. And then finally, we have Sebastian Park, who has been on the pod a few times, but mostly in the crypto space. And now you're just part of the our, our usual panel. So uh, w- welcome to that, Seb.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as, as Nico said, my name is Sebastian Park, Seb Park on Twitter. I am a venture partner at BitCraft, focused on user-generated gaming, blockchain, Esports. When we see something cool in esports, I'm also the co-founder of Infinite Campus, which is a user-generated gaming publisher, or quote-unquote metaverse publisher. Take it as you will. And so let's, <laughs> we've uh, we're fortunate as as a as a publisher, we've we've already been able to ship about four games this year. But um, that's that's not fair because <laughs> we we have a lot more people on 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 that type of iterative loop. And Roblox is a much faster loop, for example, mm-hmm. than uh, AAA Unity.
2: Yeah, really cool. All right. Awesome. Welcome, David, Mika and Sebastian. Let's dive in. So first topic of today, Microsoft acquires Activision Blizzard. So, you know, when it comes to biggest gaming deal ever, Take-Two and Zynga had a good run for a bit more than a week (laughs) because (laughs) yesterday... Microsoft announced its plan to acquire Activision Blizzard. Um, they're going to buy Microsoft. Uh, they're going to buy Activision at uh, ninety-five dollars per share, which implies a sixty-eight point seven billion dollar enterprise value. It is an all-cash deal and expected to close in the fiscal year of twenty twenty-three. It will be the third largest gaming company in the world. So the combined entity after Tencent and Sony, and um, the Activision Blizzard teams will report to Phil Spencer. The CEO of Microsoft Gaming. So yeah, huge news. Um, Very curious to hear your guys' takes on this. Um, Sebastian, let you kick this things off. What did you think when you saw this? Uh,
1: I think first and foremost, uh, you know, shout out and apologies to the like. Polystream, Mythical Games, lip Protocols, Animokas, anyone who had their yeah. announcement scheduled for Tuesday uh, this past week, because it, I think Dean Takahashi said it best, where he said, yeah, hey, you know, in small news this morning, people are raising $50 million, <laughs> right? And so yeah. it's—it it is certainly a groundbreaking piece of news. I'll say the thing that I found super interesting was just how quickly the markets adapt. I know we, we joke a lot about how public markets aren't very good at adapting, but uh, once the announcement was made, you saw Activision Blizzard stock jump back towards about 10% off where the stock would be in a full-on sale. Um, to Microsoft. And so that that I think is hilarious in terms of market cap standpoint. From, from Activision Blizzard itself, and, and I probably should say Activision Blizzard King, because I think King is like a really large component of this acquisition. It's I think very similar to Zynga. From a market macro sense, the public equities market, especially in the gaming sector that they're in, has been fairly down the last two quarters. So if you think about where they were price-wise a year ago, and today, the price discovery was pretty solid there. And so it allows for people to then go and make an acquisition at a price that they think is adjusted downwards and, and really bring in far more of these game loops and sort of the, the know-how necessary into the company. And so you know, kudos to everyone who's made these acquisitions. And uh, shout out to the people at Activision Blizzard who uh, have single trigger clauses in their equity and their stock grant. and just never thought about it because they never imagined the world where Activision Blizzard was selling. Mm-hmm.
2: Mika, I see you're nodding your head. You agree? Yeah, I mean,
1: I pretty much
3: agree with what, what Sebastian said. Uh, I think it's good to point out not only is it the biggest gaming deal ever, it's more than five times the sec- mm-hmm. uh, the second biggest gaming deal, which just happened last week. So it's really big. I mean, it's really, really big. And um, it kind of also has this emotional side to it. Uh, perhaps the Zynga deal didn't carry that emotional side because there's less people who are uh, really in, into the history of Zynga than there they are in the gaming industry that are in the history of, of, of Blizzard and Activision and all of the IP that go back like 30 years plus. So this deal is not just Warcraft, Call of Duty, Candy Crush. It's also King's Quest. It's uh, Gabriel Knight. I, I think like like there's a lot of these gems uh, from way back that uh, actually come with the deal, um, mm-hmm. and now all of that is kind of owned by Microsoft. Uh, so uh, I think there's many people like like who, players of games who who don't, don't necessarily look at it from the business perspective, but they're like, oh, what just happened?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I don't think people know how to feel about it. That's into the reaction. They're celebrating and then wondering if it's a good thing. And by that, I mean the players. I think generally it's been received well. I'm sort of, I mean, I am interested in what happened in the market, but it's also interesting to think about the Microsoft strategy there. What are they? You know, are they just trying to completely dominate on console and put everything in Game Pass? So it would just be absolutely crazy to go with PlayStation where you're having to buy all those games for $70. They wrap them all up in a, a, a Game Pass. I said on this podcast before when they bought Bethesda that it made Game Pass fairly unstoppable. Now for, well, I forget what it is it, 10, 15, 15 a month, then um, it's hard to, oh, how would you, why, why would you not? Mm-hmm. So yeah, many it's, great games. It, it's hard to
3: not buy it, kind of. <laughs> and we're not getting paid for this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> And I think I, I sort of admire Phil Spencer's bullish strategy. I think he's a really, I, I like him a lot, both as a, you know, a person and somebody that does has really turned uh, Microsoft around. Because it wasn't that long ago where the Xbox was being positioned as some sort of TV media box. Mm-hmm. Do you remember all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, badly. And now you know Phil took over and just really got all of their first party games in check. Did some really great M and A to bring really high quality titles in, and now. Has done, and what a commitment from Microsoft to um, really get behind games. Because there was a point in time when we were saying, "I wonder if they'll do another Xbox." Because you know the first one sort of maybe did or didn't work that well. And here they are; they're really just going to dominate now. Sony stock down twenty percent. I mean, Sony, not PlayStation stock. Sony stock down twenty million, uh, sorry, twenty billion dollars on this news. It's crazy. There's a a market reaction. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's crazy. And so I'm a. Call of Duty player, big Call of Duty fan, what does this mean for me? Um, Is is there a chance where, you know, I'll I'll be able to play it through the Game Pass or I'll also be able to play it through the Game Pass, but then I won't have to buy the whole full game. What do you think, uh, Sebastian?
1: I mean, I think for most consumers, the honest answer when there's ever an M&A is in the near term, absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. changes. And I think the general bias that we should have is that nothing will change. The actual economics of it, are such that you're acquiring uh, multiples of revenue, right? And, and in particular for Activision Blizzard, multiples of EBITDA, right? And so one of the one of the cooler parts about just gaming IP in general over the last 10 years or even the last five years or so is that gaming went from this incredibly undervalued market segment from a EBITDA multiple to now being, and by undervalued, I mean you're seeing people going out to market at three to six X top line. Now we're seeing them closer to 10, 20 some in some cases, 50x top line. And so there's nothing that's going to be done, at least in the interim, to change that around, right? There's a it's a large organization. The cultures are almost certainly different. Mm-hmm. Um, the elephant in the room is that the culture at Activision Blizzard may not be the best <laughs> to say it lightly if, if, <laughs> if, or perhaps just incredibly toxic to say it poorly, depending on uh, your point of view and sort of the information you have about the insides there. And so I'd imagine that is going to be a big lift and so you just let the systems run as they do. One last thing about that is that also remember that Activision Blizzard is a publisher and not necessarily a pure game uh, studio, right? The studio bits are King and Blizzard, but Activision as a core is a publisher. And so the core loop around development of Call of Duty games, for example, is done, I believe, at three or four studios at this point. And it's on four-year cycles, if, if, three or four-year cycles, depending on the number of studios. And so as a result, you the earliest you would see Changes in that release scheduling would be sometime um, the next midterm election in the U.S. So sometime in you know 2026.
0: Why? What's your point there? I don't understand why. Why would that deal change the? um, Wouldn't? Would you mean that you're not going to see a PlayStation version? Or
1: oh no, I meant more that the current development cycle of the next three Call of Duties has already started, right? And so we're we're in the middle of the cycle, towards the end of the cycle for one of the studios middle cycle for another yeah, studio yeah, the yeah. beginning of cycle that studio and it's incredibly unlikely in my mind that even if you're implementing a change the time scale of businesses like three four years isn't too long and so you're not you're not changing uh how call of duties are made anytime ah, in the yeah, next yeah. like four years or so especially not in terms of release cycle and in terms of um, in terms of how those games are going to come to market now granted in five years well, we may see some really strong Microsoft involvement there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. I've got a question. So, when I first heard that news, I thought, "Oh, well, maybe Microsoft would offload King because they Microsoft don't have a mobile present, don't don't, don't seem to care that much about games on mobile." Uh, when I put that to some industry peers, the the reaction was, "No, no, they're doing this to get into mobile," and I think be, I hadn't even considered that Microsoft, you know, after Windows Phone hadn't. Really tried that hard to penetrate mobile games, but maybe this is their launching point into, you know, the largest part of the games industry by players yeah. or by revenue, right?
1: And and by the way, like King by itself, like I don't think you ever spin out King because King is, if my memory serves, cause I don't think Q4 numbers are out yet, but in Q3, King was like 650 million dollars of the of the revenue pie, mm-hmm. and That's it's all lie, Candy man. Crush, pretty much. <laughs> Oh, for sure. I yeah. mean, Kenny Crush is like one of the cooler models from a game creation standpoint. The The fact that they like figure out that there's people can play 100 levels a week and so they make 110 levels a week is absolutely insane. Uh, but yeah, no, I'd imagine they are like, that's a large revenue driver for the deal, right? And so if anything, the question was um, working backwards, I'd imagine, hey, is, did Activision Blizzard acquire King with the intention of bolstering their... Revenue position for future acquisition or future positioning I think that's a little bit crazy because like who expects to be bought for 70 billion dollars <laughs> like it's like uh, a lot of things to sell that person and I mean think about it it's uh, king was bought for 6.25 billion
3: five years ago
0: I, right. I think that some of that was arbitrage as well because it, it was good for their share price just buying that amount of cash right
3: yeah and I mean the King King acquisition turned out tremendously well for activision so, uh, I, I don't think many thought that Candy Crush will have the staying power that it will have. I don't think many thought that the opportunity size in casual puzzle is as big as it turned out to be. Um, and even today, I think many people underestimate the staying power of, of these uh, free-to-play games. Uh, some of them with uh, like lifetimes of 20 plus years. They seem popular, don't they?
0: Those mobile games. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thought that I'm, I'm not the only one to have is that it feels a little like Take Two might have overpaid for Zynga at this point, given that they paid a 68% premium and uh, Microsoft paid a uh, 40%
1: premium. So... Actually, happy
3: to hear Sebastian's thoughts on on that one. Like, how does that look to, uh, like, from a market standpoint?
1: Uh, Look, I I got I got to be honest with you. I am certainly not an expert when it comes to price discovery around public stocks. I I would say when uh, when you think about from just like the larger, larger the deal gets, the more and more or fewer and fewer (laughs) buyers there are, which means there are fewer, fewer people. Bidding on you. Right. And so I'd imagine the the population of people who are able to acquire a Zynga is much larger, as crazy as that sounds, at at you know the at the price that they sold at versus because I think Zynga sold, if I remember correctly, Mm 12.7. And 12.7 billion sounds far more doable than 70. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a weird thing to say. But if you think about where uh where Microsoft is today, I think they're valued at like two and a half trillion dollars, give or take. And so if you just, I like dividing numbers by thousands. So that's, imagine you divide the the 70 billion and make it 70 million. And then you taking 70 million out of 230 billion, you're like, okay, this is a, a much smaller drop in their market cap. And so I think that's like a, a really interesting uh, fact pattern. I certainly think that both studios and uh, companies have a lot of interesting, like Activision Blizzard has far more interesting IP, at least from a fan perspective than... Uh, Zynga does uh, like what's Zynga's like core IP at this point Zynga Poker and there's Empires and Puzzles there's
3: uh, Merge Dragons uh, all of these mobile first um, kind of uh, they call them forever franchises I think but they don't have the same uh, kind of pop culture uh, feel and uh, impact uh, as these like Warcrafts and Call of Duties have
1: mm-hmm.
2: so way less immersive uh, po-
3: by the way, do you think any other company could have made the buy
1: than Microsoft? Is there anyone else who could have done this deal? From from a price perspective, sure, like Apple could do it. All the big companies could do it. But from a from a setup to do it perspective, I think Microsoft is probably one of the few uh, that could could or and would want to do it. Just from a absorption standpoint, who else you would don't want to? Who,
2: who else would want to do it? Do you think, Sebastian?
1: Well, Dave? What do
3: you think? What, what do you think of us? I mean, Sony with this like 20 billion market value loss may have wanted to do it, but I think they're not big enough to absorb
0: Activision. What, structurally or commercially? Probably both. <laughs> I don't know. Overall, I love it. I, I think it's just such a big, bold strategy. You know, life's short, so I like these mega moves. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger, does it? Like, uh, let's try and win Xbox. What will do that? I know. Why don't we spend $70 billion on <laughs> Activision and King and Blizzard all in one? And its uh, I've never seen anything like that before. That's such a power move. And, and kudos to whoever gives uh, Phil the okay to, to go and make that kind of deal because I, it's so presumably it's hard to recover from if you're in my experience in making games for sony is you know year by year you might acquire a couple of uh studios that will do you a year get every game or sorry a, a game every year or so and then all of a sudden something like this just completely blows any of that strategy out the water how, how do you compete i don't know really i mean it would take them a little while to recoup i suppose on that kind of uh on that kind of ticket price but um but they win it in the end, presumably, at that rate. I don't know. Maybe other things come into play.
3: I think it's also like a redemption redemption arc or chance for a redemption arc for Activism Blizzard. Um, obviously, they have uh, issues to deal with um, and those issues should be dealt with with all the toxic workplace stuff, sexual harassment, all all of that ho- horrible stuff that we've, we've seen in the, in the kind of circulating in, in the industry as well as like just... Uh, normal news in, in the in the past year and the optics of it look pretty bad right now for the management of Activision Blizzard and whatever the truth is the kind of dominant narrative is that the problems start at the top and this is kind of I think a chance for Microsoft to come in and clean the house if they so wish
0: I think I, I think Bobby's out, right? That's what I'm reading. 2023 when the deal closes, he exits stage left with a, a huge bag of money. Yeah, is there any other alternative? Like
1: I I don't know. It feels like that, as at least to me. Uh, just, just real quickly to clarify, I, I know because I've read some Twitter news about this. Like the the way executive stock compensation works is that there's often single triggers in the event of a change of control, and so. It's it's less that they're firing Bobby as as much as I think people may want to spin it that way. It's that they're just not going to offer Bobby another re-up on the contract right and so when the when the when the single trigger happens they'll almost certainly accelerate his entire equity package you can probably look this up in the 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 q4 in one of the investor filings but i don't actually remember exactly but i think it accelerates like 270 million dollars of stock and if it does that suddenly now he's cashed out the 300 million dollars that year and the follow-up question is like hey microsoft do you want to provide another four-year or five-year package to retain bobby as Ahead of this division. And I think Microsoft's take is like no. And so he'll certainly do the <laughs> like um the standard CEO thing, which is he can't leave now. You can't leave during the middle of an MA process. There's still a there's a five percent there's a five percent breakup clause inside. So someone has to pay someone a lot of money <laughs> if 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 the deal doesn't go through. And I think it's three billion dollars, which is a pretty sizable amount. And and then we'll we'll move along from there. I think in the interim. Uh, we've we've glossed, about, glossed over a bit, but I think it is important to say, hey, like the culture at Activision Blizzard is not acceptable. That is something that has been underreported in some circles and certainly properly brought up in other circles. And uh, certainly moving to Microsoft provides the company the opportunity to do things right,
0: which I think everyone's excited to see. Mm. I mean, what you just described was a, a firing by another way. I mean, it's still a firing, isn't it? Not. Isn't what?
1: <laughs> it's firing is an interesting one because if you fire for cause, I think he leaves with like two hundred fifty thousand dollars as opposed to two hundred seventy million dollars, and so it's 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 a small technical difference that's worth about three hundred
0: million dollars. <laughs> yeah, the, the result is the same. The the motivation and the result is the same, even though the mechanism might be different. But you know, Microsoft, a company with a good heart. And I think they'll do right by gamers, do right by Activision Blizzard King would be my prognosis. It takes a year to close, is that what I'm hearing?
3: Or at least a year, up to 18 months, I guess. So we might be waiting on it for a little while. Still. The
1: SEC has a comment and then um, there's a lot of, they'll probably send back comments back and they have another 60 days too. So it's a, it's a long, complicated process and why bankers make a lot of money.
0: Lawyers a year are yeah, going to make a lot of money. Here's a question. Uh, maybe you guys know. In the interim, before uh, it gets acquired by uh, Microsoft, do PlayStation versions of the game still come out? How does that work?
1: I guess. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't think they stop with the PlayStation versions anytime, even after the acquisition. It's just I, that's I, I sort of t- towards the core part of it, which is uh, especially now when they're under regulatory scrutiny. You definitely don't make that type of move, but certainly even in just from a development cycle, they're building certainly building on tool sets either on Unreal or actually don't remember what Activision Blizzard's tool setting. They might have some internal tool setting, but everything's being built for every market. So why not just make the money?
0: Uh, Well, because if if you're okay, so in the interim, obviously. You Well, not obviously, but I could see why you'd still release a PlayStation version. But presumably long-term, the plan is not to continue to release Call of Duty on PlayStation post-acquisition. I mean, it's what they did on uh, Minecraft. I guess they kept it open for everybody. Don't see that happening here, though. At least they put a three, six-month delay in. Do you
3: think, David, that'll actually happen, that Call of Duty would not be on PlayStation? I don't believe that's going to happen, actually.
0: You don't? Uh, I mean... I remember speaking to Microsoft once, and they—this and was maybe a different time—but they said, "You know, we uh, we were doing we were first party with Sony, making games for them, and we were talking to Microsoft about doing some for them." They they told me that they liked the idea of taking a bullet out of Sony's chamber and putting it in Microsoft's chamber was how they put it to me. So certainly, I could see the temptations there, but um, but maybe they don't go that way. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I, I would um, if I were a betting man, and I I very much am. I, I bet strongly against it. Uh, uh, if, if for for a variety of reasons but one revenues two uh, you're not competing with sony really on the pc version anymore like the console wars are moving over to more of like an ecosystem more i don't think you have to worry about that as much uh, i'd be very surprised if they you know do delayed releases or don't release on playstation at least anytime in the next five years and so if if, if someone finds this clip in the next five years then and I'm wrong. Please let me know. I'd love to find out because that—that I think is something really interesting. I uh, ignoring antitrust, which I don't think is even necessarily a large consideration here. Uh, the the bigger thing is just: do you really want to lock out that much of your revenue? Right there, it's it's a lot of revenue, and and it's you spe- definitely have studios already building there. And mm. really, what you care more about is the expansion of Call of Duty IP. I'd imagine.
0: What even if you're Microsoft? I mean, strategically, don't you want Xbox to be the de facto platform in the same way as they want to w- win the PC? Uh, you know, they want PC to be the de facto platform.
1: Sony's market cap is what one one hundred fifty billion, and Microsoft's three tr- uh, two and a half trillion. And so, my expectation here is that is that like the the bigger issue is making sure Call of Duty works on PC, right? Which is not something that they've done before, and something that they're they're probably. I think that's like a bigger bet would be that you would start seeing Call of Duty released simultaneously on PC and sort of what that introduces to the ecosystem versus um, I'd imagine them being particularly anti-Sony. But that's just my guess.
2: <laughs> All right. So who's next in, in these, you know, these acquisition sprees? I've heard, you know, um, about the a, a lot happening. So basically a week ago, I think we heard that... Um, You know, people expected that that the gaming industry would look fundamentally different at the end of this year than it it did at the beginning. And so that's got me wondering who's next on the, you know, um, on the acquisition side. Uh, Do you expect we'll see Ubisoft or perhaps EA for sale? Uh, What are your thoughts there? Mikko, what do you think?
3: I think uh, there will be a big deal at least. I have no idea which one. Uh, but if you look at the highest tier in terms of market cap, there's not that many of these companies. I think NetEase is like 70 billion. EA is like 40 billion. I don't know where UB stands at. Uh, that's kind of, I think, the highest tier, like like a market cap in tens of billions. And as we discussed, or as Sebastian said, there's really very few buyers in that market. Um, but EA is definitely a, juicy target if you if you if you think about what uh microsoft just did with Activision and blizzard uh EA is i think kind of in a similar boat
0: ea disney i've said i've said it on this podcast before i don't know why disney wouldn't buy so, uh, a more one of the more wholesome game companies just uh, you take a bigger bet in interactive they always seem to dip their toe in but never make a big commitment
3: there's also like a next tier at 10 billion mark that is like a Take Two, Nexon, Embracer, these types of companies. So I think there will be acquisitions in either one of those uh, kind of, I guess, tiers, as as you could say.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the Ubisoft stock you just asked me, and so um, over the so since yesterday, the stock jumped by 15%, almost 16%. And the current market cap is about six and a half billion. Um, so it feels like the market is kind of, you know, expecting that, you know, Ubisoft might be uh, next. That's interesting.
0: I think Ubisoft a little bit, um, they're a bit out there as a company, less predictable. I mean, they do have a couple of uh, consistent IPs, but they're a bit sort of wacky and inconsistent, I don't know. Mm. less of an obvious acquisition for me mm-hmm.
2: and ea jumped stock price jumped by about five percent yesterday current market gap uh-huh. around 50 billion uh, 40 billion sorry
0: so the market would think that ubisoft is a bigger better bet than ea is that it i guess yeah, i for guess an acquisition if target. we're talking
2: about size of the company there's more companies that could buy um ubisoft
0: seven billion it's peanuts well, look, what, what are we now? We're 19th, oh, recording this on 19th of January. So, you know, th- there's going to be more of them ahead of this in this year, right? I mean, it's hard to think yeah. which it's going to be right now, but you can guarantee this, this is, the year has not ended, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Interesting.
3: That, and I think like, like the, the great thing about it is that it feels like the market is valuing content creation uh, higher than maybe it used to. So it, it's like there's, there's, a uh, um, good content is always valuable and teams that create good content, it's even more valuable. And, uh, if you can top off that with some household IP names, you kind of, um, mm-hmm. have it set up, uh, that, that makes me kind of feel nice about, uh, <laughs> working in a game studio myself. <laughs>
2: All right. So Mika's company in five years will be one of these like, oh, will Lightheart be bought this year or not? We'll see. Um, All right. Cool. Um, Yeah. That was interesting. Let's see what what happens in the rest of the year. I'm I'm very curious. And uh, if if something crazy happens, we'll for sure discuss it here. Let's move on to our next topic, which looks at um, also some larger numbers, but slightly smaller large numbers. Um, so initially, we're going to talk about OpenSea that raises $300 million at a $13.3 billion valuation, which is higher than Zynga's. Um And so the company or the, yeah, the platform had a really, really, really strong 2021 because 2021 was the year in which NFTs burst onto the scene. And I had my grandma asking me, uh, Yes, Nicola, what is an NFT? I don't understand, <laughs> but I know that you know, you're know you into Bitcoin and I hear that Bitcoin is doing well, so I'm happy for you. And So that's basically the the extent to which my, my grandmother is involved in this space. Anyway, so she heard about that. Um, and so uh, OpenSea did more than tw- 2.4 billion in transaction volume in the past 30 days, um, which is 600X compared to last year. And so the round was led by Paradigm and KOTU. So yeah, first thing maybe I I feel like there has been some misconceptions around this, and and this is something I can I can perhaps uh, talk about, and that is how do NFTs market or NFT marketplaces work? So very basically, an NFT marketplace is an application on top of a blockchain. So basically, what happens if I put an NFT that I own for sale on OpenSea through OpenSea? Um, it means that someone else can actually see it from outside of OpenSea because it's all you know, put on the blockchain. And so what happens is I put the, you know, my NFT for sale and OpenSea, the money that it makes is within the smart contract or or within the smart contract that is the transaction. So my willingness to put my NFT for sale, it includes a 2.5% transaction fee for itself. Um, And so whenever someone buys, it pays the full price and 2.5% of the the selling price goes to OpenSea. Um, And so... Because I, what I saw, for example, um, you know, there was some drama around um, stolen board apes, and OpenSea basically banned these stolen board apes, and then people were saying, "Look, it's not decentralized at all." But the fact that OpenSea bans stolen board Apes basically means that through the OpenSea application, which is basically a graphical user interface on top of the blockchain, you just can't, you know, transact these. But that doesn't mean that you can't, if you own one of these stolen board Apes, you can't put them for sale. Um, you just won't be able to buy or sell them through OpenSea, but there are more than enough platforms um, out there where you can actually, you can buy NFTs that were put up for sale on OpenSea. You can buy them on any other, you know, NFT platform as well, because, you know, it's all on blockchain. So... Does that make sense, Mika? Uh,
3: kinda, I guess. So, does you said that uh, 2.4 billion in transaction volume in the past 30 days, right? Yes. And out of that, it's like 2.5 percent is the transaction fee. Yes. So, am I correct that that implies like 720 million run rate, roughly? Yes. For in in terms of revenue.
2: Yeah. Per yeah monthly yeah monthly yeah correct.
3: I, I did my math here at the same time, so I was just like, did, did my logic check up. So, so basically, out of that 2.4 billion in transaction volume, they're getting 2.5% uh, out of that, right? Yeah, so that's six, $60 million per month, right? Yes. So, I think it's $720, 720 million, I think.
2: That would be the yearly then, yes, correct. Growing obviously, right?
3: growing obviously yeah, yeah but just trying to get the ballpark of the of the revenue and how their business model works so that's that kind of my my goal here and i think i think we'll reach reached that goal
2: yeah all right and and so now i think it's it's interesting to draw um uh comparison to you know other different types well different levels of decentralization within these um, these like these blockchain applications because you know OpenSea is a decentralized or, or um, application or a DApp. Um, so basically, you have you have three layers of decentralization mm-hmm. when it comes to these NFT marketplaces. And so the the first layer, and that is the least decentralized, is Coinbase style. Um, so Coinbase is working on an NFT platform, and I'm not 100% sure if it will work this way. But the way Coinbase works is you put your NFT on Coinbase, or the way it works right now is you put your Bitcoin on Coinbase, and so at that moment you don't own the keys. To the wallet that holds those those crypto or those NFTs, um, and so these are the least decentralized um, platforms, but which means that you can have almost zero transaction fees. Because right now, if I put, uh, if I buy something on OpenSea, I pay. If it's on the Ethereum mainnet, I pay easily a hundred dollars in in gas fees. So that's just the transaction fee, and that is this is on top of the fee that I pay, you know, OpenSea and the creator, perhaps. So it's it's very expensive to transact in NFTs on the the Ethereum layer one right now, um, and so if you do that on the Um, on on Coinbase, it basically doesn't happen on the blockchain anymore. So Coinbase just has their wallet with all the NFTs and it internally keeps track of who owns what NFTs. Um, So that is the least decentralized way. The next tier would be uh, OpenSea style. So OpenSea is a, you know, if I sell something or buy something on OpenSea, I do it with a wallet. So I I own the keys to that um, wallet that holds the NFT. Uh, So OpenSea at no point owns my NFT, but OpenSea is a venture backed company. And so there's still a, an amount of centralization there. And then we come to looks rare. So I don't know if, you, if, you, if you're a bit into the crypto NFT space, you might have heard of looks rare. So looks rare is basically uh, also an NFT marketplace. They're a competitor of OpenSea. And what they did was they <laughs> airdropped um, looks rare tokens, which are which are governance tokens of the LuxRare platform. So they're like, they they ba- made tokens which represent the ownership of that 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 platform and they airdropped it to the most active people on OpenSea, of which I was one. <laughs> so today I claimed my LuxRare tokens, uh, which was fun. Um, and so th- that way they're trying to get people to, you know, instead of sell on OpenSea, sell on... Um, LuxRare and LuxRare, the sort of LuxRare fee is not two and a half percent, it's two percent. And if you so I own LuxRare tokens, I stake the LuxRare tokens, and so a part of that transaction fee actually goes to me as a partial owner of the whole protocol. Um and that is then the most decentralized NFT marketplace that that um that there is, at least from what I've known right now.
3: Could you remove these like should you remove OpenSea, the website and what whatever APIs are? like, involved and all of the NFTs that a person owns, they would still work? Yes. Or is the system somehow still, like, um, is, is it, is it dependent on OpenSea working?
2: Not at all. So any so if OpenSea would go down right now, it wouldn't change. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people who only know to look. So basically, they count on OpenSea to see their own NFTs. Basically, just because I mean, it's 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 a very good website. And so if you compare rare to OpenSea right now, so rare is fundamentally from a decentralization perspective a better platform, but the user interface is way worse. Um, it's like if I, I see myself going back to to OpenSea because it's just easier. Um, although like. Now if I don't sell a lot of NFTs, but if I do, I'm gonna put it on, on looks because then I, you know, I get a share of the of the revenue from from that transaction myself.
0: Let me come at it from a different point of view. You're down in the weeds there. I compare it with you know, I see OpenSea as a digital eBay. It's a eBay for selling digital stuff. There we go. That's my and I'm just looking it up here, unless I've got it wrong, then eBay's fees are 12.8% plus a, a fee on top of that. So way more. For offering something that, I mean, eBay don't actually handle any of those goods. You could say, well, they're physical goods, so there's more work involved. But of course, they don't touch any of that. So by way of comparison, that 2.5% fee looks more attractive. And, you know, that's a good thing we're going into in the future. Also, interesting to compare market cap of, you just said market cap, or at least valuation of OpenSea is 13 point something billion, right? And, and, and eBay is 40 billion. So interesting that although, you know, they've had a great year, as you say, but compared with the amount of transaction volume going through eBay, tiny in comparison, but about a third, about a third of the price already, which shows that a lot of bullishness is baked into that valuation, you would imagine.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think you touch upon a key point, and I actually think that's also one of the reasons why I'm so excited for Web3, and that is that, um, so eBay, one of the advantages that eBay is, it's a two-sided marketplace that has fixed the or has overcome the cold start problem so they have on both sides so they have buyers and sellers and so there's a lot of people that know they want to sell something they know they have to go to ebay and so the difference is that for OpenSea, um it's a completely different scenario because of the fact that openc doesn't own the offers that it it has so anyone can just you know take their stuff and go on another marketplace anyone can build a marketplace where you can also see the 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 uh, NFTs that are being sold on OpenSea, um, and so I think that's one of the strengths of Web3. It's where you know people have more control over what they're doing, and these marketplaces that have these um, uh, you know that that have these huge uh, network effects, they aren't as powerful, and they don't have that much of the bargaining power. And I think that's why OpenSea still has to keep its its percentage fee to two and a half because if they would increase, the incentive for others to build a similar thing, which is way easier then than building a new ebay um just increase
0: well that's good and and you know in the case of Luxware, who's benefiting from that is the people using it in the form of that token so it feels like a, a better future than web 2
2: exactly i am um, yeah i think it's i think this is this is whole principle of web 3 it is you know own the protocol that you're using be incentivized be a part owner of what, what you're doing and
1: and everyone benefits well, Nico, what are your thoughts on Sort of what I call like the de facto effect, right? That like OpenSea right now is a centralizing layer on top of these NFTs, right? And in that, if you want, if you're quote unquote delisted from OpenSea, mm-hmm. almost certainly, you're, I mean, I think not almost certainly, definitely your transaction volume goes down compared to if it we're on OpenSea. Like, mm-hmm. do you have thoughts, you know, given that they're valued at what 13 ish billion dollars, like, this is very much like a de facto platform play, similar to eBay. If, uh, if you remember, there were a lot of competitors to eBay initially, and then, then eBay became the de facto place, and that's where it got the most volume, and that's where the customers aggregated. And insofar as Web 1 and Web 2 was about centralization and aggregation, how does OpenSea fit into your more macro decentralization thesis?
2: I think that's a good question. and I, I agree. I think the valuation is pretty mainly based on if now you want to sell or buy an NFT, you go to OpenSea. And I guess the question is going to be, can they stay ahead of, of the curve? Um, and I think, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point um, OpenSea also goes the decentralization way, where they issue the OpenSea token um, that they distribute to their users. And so everyone is incentivized to keep using that platform. Uh, but the fact that they are not doing it right now, I think, just means that they still have this this huge huge advantage. Um, but to be honest, I don't know how this will play out. I, I I'm I think LuxRare is 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 probably the best experiment we've seen until now. Um, but I, I I it's hard for me to predict how important the graphical like user interface is going to be in this case because OpenSea is just way better than uh, than um, rares.
3: I think it's more important what you said about like the two-sided markets. Uh, if you get a dominant position with both the sellers and and the buyers, uh, that position is actually pretty stable.
0: I was going to say how this relates to games on the Metacast. I suppose is that even though you're not seeing a lot of game assets on or any uh, any market at the moment, yeah, you do on OpenSea. There's a ton. Yeah, I guess you, I guess you do on OpenSea, but I mean that I compared with what I think we'll see in the future, where I can see the OpenSea making a large play to bring those game assets um, onto their platform and what's mm-hmm. perceived by many to be just a, an mm-hmm. art platform, or a, pl- a place for selling art, they'd like to turn into any kind of digital asset. Um, and, and so maybe in five years time, there's a lot of game assets, You know, that's the de facto place where people are going to buy and sell uh, mm-hmm. game assets. That's that's there for the taking. It's not a big part of what they're doing now, but I can see it uh, becoming. Uh,
2: I, I actually think that that's how this is going to play out in the long term. And I think we'll see differentiated platforms focused on a specific niche. So you'll probably have like an art, you know, NFT marketplace. Um, and then you'd have what we've now seen. So Justin Kahn, the co- the founder of um, Twitch, has recently launched, a few weeks ago, launched Fractal. So Fractal is um, a NFT marketplace on Solana, which is completely focused on gaming. Um, and that has a lot of advantages. So I already went on there, and so it's it's so basically in open an open sea, it's you basically have your NFT collection right um and so maybe let's say they have a hypothetical game where you have you know we have you have uh, bows you have arrows um and you have swords you know kind of rpg game um and so in nft it would be very difficult for you to filter through okay i want you know this type of arrow and or i only want to see bows um and you know you have tons of different games with completely different me- mechanics um and i think that's where fractal um is you know uh, focusing on so what they want to do is make you know super simple user interface specific for each type of game. And so they currently have, I think about like 10 games, but maybe more. Um, and you can see that they've really put effort in like, oh, you want to get started? You're going to need this. And then you need your a character. And then, okay, you want to start killing mobs? You need your sword. And then you can you know, easily click and, and follow your, you know, the bit of the the player, you um, adventure through whatever they need to buy in the NFT marketplace. And so, I mean, I'd love to have your thoughts on this as well, but I can see that, you know, the future of an NFT marketplace is going to be divided among, you know, verticals.
0: That feels like a Crypto Corner episode ahead of us. Don't you think? I mean, there's a lot to dig into there.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
2: Um, Sebastian, what, what do you think? You're, you're into Web three. What are, What are your thoughts? When When
1: I think back to Web two, and then I, and again, I don't think necessarily pattern matching is going to be the best indicator of success in in Web three necessarily, but certainly it's always interesting to reflect on the history of the things that we've done in the past. What's particularly true for Web two and Web one, depending on how you define those two, was that UI and ease of access and network effects were probably the three main drivers of platform success as well as product success, right? And and it's unclear to me right now that the decentralized thesis is going to win down in the next 18 months. Certainly I'm a huge fan of decentralization in general, right? Like that's something that I've, um, you know, prior to all this, I, you know, this a little bit of work with the EFF and a lot of work around net neutrality. And so from, from a pure like political standpoint, I'm, I'm a fan of that approach. But my concern right now is that it is just too easy for people to want. Like what we saw in privacy was that people are willing to give up privacy for 5% improvement in cover. And so, and if you talk to, uh, I had sort of a random random thought, but a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to give a guest lecture at Yale on privacy and D- DRM and One of the things I noticed was that here are a bunch of incredibly intelligent 18, 19-year-old university students, and they just did not care about DRM in the same way that I think we all did back when Sony was implementing it on the CDs in the early 2000s. The the, the kids just like, oh yeah, I mean, of course, Like Netflix needs to make money. Of course, I can't take screenshots and remix the images of Netflix original shows like they had. Uh, Because Netflix, if you guys don't know, blocks on iPads and iPhones the ability to take screen caps of their content. It's actually sort of one of the more interesting DRM features that uh, probably goes a little bit underreported right now.
2: What, what, does, what does DRM stand for?
1: Uh, so that's a great question. I've I I've used DRM. It's like digital rights management, I think, is like the exact acronym. Um, but that's a great question. It's a little bit like when someone asked me what this word RESTful API meant. I was like, hey, I've been using this acronym for so long. I forget if it's represent, representative state transfer or for something else. Uh, in any case, uh, I guess similarly, people should see the value of decentralization and see the value of competition in that way. But I am I am not concerned, but more opining on the fact that hey, it does seem like some of these like incredibly centralized systems are able to you know protect quote unquote end users from bad villains, etc. Similar to how people you give up privacy and um, the ability to be anonymous in exchange for national security or better, easier access to things. I wonder if that trade-off is happening continuously and, and it'll be interesting to see, especially as OpenSea and some of these more macro 10 plus billion dollar companies continue to scale, what direction they take that at. Because if a, I'd imagine if a founder is given like gun to their head, not that, I don't calling them from the state. So maybe guns are a great example. But the, the euphemism is a gun to your head. Like, what would they do? I, I'd imagine they probably would protect the customer over protect their decentralization ethos. And I'm not sure how that works long term.
2: And so does that also mean that you think that's a, you know, a Coinbase NFT platform marketplace where the customers are protected? Um, you think you you think that that will get a lot of traction?
1: Yeah, I think that, that almost certainly will. Uh, it's, it's, When we think about consumer behavior, and I think this is true um, for Mika, David, and myself on the gaming side, it's like, look, like the consumers just really enjoy playing the game and doing the thing they want to do, and they they don't really care if our backend is written in Unity or Unreal or, or if our netcode uh, does proper synchronous or asynchronous multiplayer, right? Like they, they care about, hey, does my character go from A to B? It's one of my favorite parts of QA testing that I, I share with sort of our junior devs and PMs is that you, know, you have to really knock out those bugs because you're not going to get any good game loop feedback Cause people just fixate on, hey, this this pixel's out of place, right? Like it's just a fixation issue, especially when it comes to core consumers versus if I were to, for example, someone of my games, Amika, I'm sure he will have some great actual game loop advice and David as well. Whereas if I send it to your typical game consumer, they'd be like, Hey, so um, the hammer's a little glitchy. Like it doesn't always like hit the perfect frame every time. And I'm like, Thanks, guys. I appreciate I appreciate you guys a lot.
2: you, uh, you guys agree, uh, David and Amika?
1: I think you
3: need to fill me out a little bit on what uh, specifically. That was a mouthful.
2: No, I guess I guess <laughs> the the point was, and 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 this this like brings us far away or or away from our discussion about you know NFT marketplaces. But the, the question was like, is decentralization for NFTs you know even going to be what what players and gamers really want? Um, and and I guess what Sebastian is saying, um, if I understand you correctly, I think um, f- then th- they won't care. Like for them, like if it's yeah. an open sea or, or whatever, uh, whatever is easiest, um, least risky. Um,
3: yeah, yeah. I I would agree that the biggest population of 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 gamers don't really care uh, about about those type of details. Like I mean, the biggest population of of people who play games are still the People who play Candy Crush type of games, right? Uh, and and uh, and and everyone is a gamer nowadays. So so that's the kind kind of like um, angle that I would think about it. Uh, and a typical Candy Crush player actually is really good at the game, and they played for a long time. But they actually care about uh, swapping the, the the candy and getting to the next level,
0: and uh, and, and and not 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 much else. Yeah, I would say in in building games, the people building the games focus on a different set of things than the people playing the games. Often, because you're you're right like in amongst it, and know all the details, and sometimes what you think is important in a game as you're building it is completely different from the person playing it. And it's dangerous when those things get too out of line. It, it reminds me of what Seb's talking about reminds me a little bit of um, keeping your crypto on exchanges that everybody you know that's really mad about crypto says so you never do that you have got to put it on this hardware ledger which is frankly a bit of a pain in the ass to use today still i think reality is most people don't care enough to move it off an exchange and as that as they get more secure that's probably fine but you know i, I don't suggest you ever state that opinion in any sort of cryptocurrency forum or something because uh you know the the fans have a different view from the 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 everybody else it feels sometimes yeah that's true
2: all right and so if i understand you correctly um the niche of making you know gaming specific nft marketplaces uh, might not be as successful uh, in the future just because we'll probably see centralized exchange um like or the gamers won't won't even want to move their assets around on a blockchain anyway they will just live within a game um and they'll be happy not to have to think about you know
0: wallets and keys i would say that what they care about is the ability to make money from it or or just be able to sell it once they're done with it that's important important new idea exactly how it's done feels less important to to the majority of people as the market expands i think
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that's fair that's fair that's a good take um me, my, my crypto bro hat needs sometimes uh, to hear these <laughs> kinds of things. <takes. laughs> All right. Um, let's move on to our final topic. We have a bit of time left. Um, so over the past mm-hmm. two days, actually, so we're recording this on Wednesday. And so on Monday, Spike, Um, announced a $55 million seed round. uh, I haven't heard that one before. To bring a social twist to casual mobile games. And then the next day, uh, yesterday, slightly eclipsed by, you know, our uh, Microsoft and Activision news, Dream Games raised $255 million at a $2.75 billion valuation. Um, These are, you know, significant raises. um, And both from Turkey. So what's happening? What's what's in the water in Turkey? Why do they have such amazing game studios, or at least you know game studios that are raising lots of money? What's happening there?
0: David, go ahead. Well, I just can say it's it's all uh, sort of people from Peak leadership, right? That are from Peak that got sold to Zynga for 1.8 billion dollars, I think. Well, I can't remember what it feels like about a year ago, and. Uh, and the I guess some of those people have left either at the time or more recently and have built these two companies. So I think it's the, when you're saying Turkey, what you're really saying is, the it, and well, you know, people that have had success at Peak demonstrably um, and then um, and then started to build something else. I can't quite get my head around those valuations. Even so, I mean, if Peak sells for 1.8 billion and the, I think you just said that the valuation is 2.7 for...
2: Dream, yeah. Yeah,
0: so I can't quite figure that out. I mean, not you know. I think even if you did everything the same as you did with Peak, there's no guarantee that you're going to get the same result. So, so to have a valuation that assumes that you're going to do significantly better seems risky. But then maybe maybe they got mega KPIs of a game that's in soft launch. That um...
3: I mean, but there's two two cases, David. There's Spike and Dream. Okay, and Dream actually has already the the revenue to kind of a uh, Make up for that valuation, but but Spike only has a very small scale soft launch game out. Well, okay, but, so, but uh,
0: you know yeah. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but sure they have a game in market. But is it if the revenues? Could the can you get behind that valuation from the revenues that they're reporting on their game that they have in market?
3: Oh, for Royal Match, I think they're doing like one million a day, roughly in in net revenue or something like that. Uh, but it's st- i mean it's still a pretty hefty valuation it's like above 5x uh, bookings uh like forward looking bookings uh multiple for for the dream valuation um so yeah they do have the revenue but but uh like is it should it be 2 2 billion or 2.75 is is what the question um and uh like if you think about royal match it's um uh, it's already so big that growing it is actually pretty hard. Um, like when you get to a certain scale, growing it, like each additional 20% growth is is more difficult than the previous one. This is kind of a typical uh, scaling truth. Um, so, so it kind of makes me think that the investors are banking on the future games that Dream Games will do. But there's, I mean, th- there is a lot to say about Royal Match. I don't think there's any other team out there that could have built that game and if you never made like casual casual puzzle games um, it might be difficult to pinpoint why Royal Match is so good because there's no single piece or an innovative design choice it's just 100% execution at the absolute highest level and that kind of that's kind of what makes it um, unique I think and and hard to copy actually Mm -hmm.
2: And so and so what's the plan with the money? Because here we discussed dream games um six months ago because they raised hundred and fifty five at a one billion dollar valuation, so one like okay, so two and two points it's more almost a tripling in value, and also what what are you going to do with the money? Is that like spin up a new you know team to build the next game or
3: that's a good question i uh, i mean i th- I think the previous
0: round was primarily for marketing expenses I guess. I guess if you're spending, if you're seeing a million dollars a day and you're seeing a payback window of, what do you think that would be, 90 days? It's like 18 to 24 months. What, a payback window of 18 to 24 months? No. For a casual puzzle, yes. What? Well, it just then you're tying up a lot of money, I suppose is uh, in marketing. Yeah. yeah, that is
3: correct. Yeah, you need a lot of capital right. for that. Okay.
0: So I guess that's where it's going. I mean, it's just such large sums of money. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is. David David could do crazy stuff with that. Yeah. I know, well, seed rounds at 50 million. I mean, all definitions are going out the window. <laughs> Nobody cares anymore. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, for Spike, I mean, the
3: seed rate itself makes sense to me. Uh impressive team, good track record. I mean, I I would definitely uh like if I was an investor, I would do the seed round. But the scale of the raise, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like uh, they have a game out that looks like a competitor for Coin Master. Uh, they haven't scaled it at all yet. And typically if you need that amount of capital, you are actually in a scaling up phase. And uh, I don't know, maybe they're not telling the full story in their PR and maybe they have like a reason to to remain in, in half stealth mode. Um, and they're actually working on something else, uh, that that could be like one one theory uh, it it feels like we don't have the full story uh, with the with the p r that we are seeing from from spike
1: Turkey also just really cool, honestly, like from a mm-hmm. uh, I, I certainly think that uh, myself heavily included because as an american i I tend to only care about about three thousand miles of of territory often, but uh, like turkey's such an such a Especially if you think relative to the explosion of education that happened in like the sixties and seventies, you know, post Ottoman Empire and sort of the growth of that country in general, uh, like there's, I've I've met some of the coolest and most capable game developers in the world in Turkey. And I think we see a lot of this, especially um, in in different parts of the not traditionally Western world, right? And I think that's something that's really awesome. Uh, I, my understanding last time I talked to a colleague of mine who. Uh, was in the Turkish market, was that like the average game developer costs like 40K a year or something like that? Whereas I think the average game developer in San Francisco costs something like, in the ball or closer to 200,000. And so, you know, uh, and to, to, uh, to Mika's point, like it's it's so interesting because it could just be, and who knows if this is actually the case, that you, you got $50 million. If your burn rate is 40K a year per head, uh, you can take a lot of shots on goal. Uh, to, to mix metaphors here and, and go back to, uh, to more European metaphors. And so, I, I think that shots on goal idea is something that's probably fairly underrated. Uh, like it's like these loops are so execution based. I think people, uh, Nico and I talk about this all the time, where it's people who are outside of uh, gaming think that gaming is a lot easier than it actually is. They're like, oh, we'll come up with a good idea and then it will implement it. And they don't see sort of the hard work that like David and Mika and everyone else does in terms of the actual execution of making that game good because there's that insane uncanny valley. And so I'd imagine it's probably a multiple shots on goal. That said, you know, I think this thing is super related to the first topic. There's like a lot of money in this ecosystem right now. There's like a ton of money. And so, you know, if you, Uh, I think that's probably the biggest difference between now and 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have so many more funds that are able to deploy capital. You have so much more capital in the ecosystem. It's crazy compared to raising 10 years ago.
3: And it's even like three years ago, uh, it's changed, I think.
0: I remember, um, I've been doing this for a while, as perhaps some of you guys know, but my, I remember seeing those first M&A deals, which are companies like Origin and Maxis and Bullfrog. I was at EA for, for those, so close to them. I don't, can't remember what they were, but I remember them being about $50 million. $50 million, that's enormous. Holy, the, the amount of money in this industry is enormous, $50 million. And now that's the same as the seed raise. It's just, I mean, I understand why we've got here. But the, the growth is not to be underestimated. It's just incredible. And also, back to your point, Seb, there's a really interesting medium article in how Turkey got a foothold in this industry, particularly in mobile. So, you know, I said, oh, oh it's because they've got peak founders. yeah. But how, how do they get that many people that are good at making games in a place that you wouldn't, you know, I don't recognize as being a hub of technology. Evidently, it is now to the point that they can build these kind of companies. But how did that happen? And what... You know what? What systems they put in place to make it possible to have that kind of growth, uh, uh, technology growth in that part of the world. Whatever is in the water, as you say, Nico, is uh, worth us all drinking.
1: Yeah, no, it's I love social. Uh, there are there are entire books on this, and it's one of my favorite topics. is just like the sociology of network effects among people, right? Just if you like, we're we're before the podcast, are we were talking about how like the the Finns have amazing esports players, right? And that's in part because you know, iron sharpens iron, right? And there are just so many awesome Dota 2 or StarCraft players in that area such that they, or Counter-Strike players even, that they make each other better. And then suddenly you have a bunch of world-class players coming out of that ecosystem. And I think similarly, what we're seeing is just the value of that mentorship, the value of that network effect. Um, and so uh, it's super exciting to see a Turkey. I, I'm curious what the next region will be. Like certainly there's almost certainly a huge group of people who are going to come up with awesome game companies. One would expect from like Gongzhou and Shanghai, given sort of the success that we're seeing in game studios out there the past few years. Maybe there's another one coming out of, oh, I don't know, like Texas or 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 somewhere in,
0: in Spain or France. I think that I, I've noticed that the UK was good sort of in the 8-bit days, I'm, I'm in the UK. In the, and I think that sometimes when you become experts in one category, You know, the the UK did not, overall, did not do well in mobile, did not do well in social, you know, Facebook, Canvas, social games, and, you know, might not do the same in blockchain. I think that when you become expert in one, in a way, it might prevent you from really uh, getting a foothold in something new. Really, mobile was to, you know, Turkey and uh, Finland and Scandinavia, I guess, and, and it felt like most of the Canvas stuff came from West Coast U.S., it's it's strange that it does seem to be quite regionalized.
1: I I imagine this is just from my own personal experience where the people you get to talk to greatly influence your ability to think and work right. And so if you get to talk to some of the best mobile, like I I I came up in gaming in the machine zone era right. And so for me like it was very like performance marketing was the lifeblood of everyone around me right. And so it's it's so interesting to see just sort of those different skill sets come up. And as a result, like they help you and mentor you and, and then you pay it forward in that way. It's going to be interesting to see, for example, for Nico's point, like where, where the Web3 version of that is, like where are those people aggregating? Right now, the early leader seems to be the Philippines somehow, which is going to be pretty cool to see. So maybe that's like the, the best bet in terms of people who figure out this ecosystem for the next generation of games.
2: Mm-hmm. Exciting. And if you want to have some smart people to talk to, you can uh, always join our Discord let uh, let me just subtly plug that in there. But uh, yeah, with that, thanks for these you know great conversations, David, Sebastian, and Mika. Really enjoyed them. I hope listener, you enjoyed them too. Um, we saw that you know in Spotify you can now rate podcasts. So you know if you like what you heard, please you know just give us a five star. That uh, it mean a lot. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, we'll be back next week with the Crypto Corner. Um, don't know yet what that's going to be about still need to record that one but that should be good so uh, with that Metacast is out and we look forward to speaking to you next episode cheers